I'll start us off explaining the humiliations competition, uh, which is, um, uh, it's a heated competition. It's, <laughs> it's, it's severe. Uh, and at the moment, you'll see why, because I'll see um, uh, uh, my uh, chair in talking about this to Alice in a second. I'll just give you an example of my humiliations. But recently, she had one that was such a doozy that there was no question that the competition was gone. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I had lost it. Um, the, uh, my, one of my better humiliations actually involved accidentally Alice. I was giving a reading in Boston, and uh, um, as some of you I'm sure know here, when writers read at bookstores, sometimes we get throngs of up to five people. <laughs> One of whom is there to sleep it off, whatever the <laughs> it is, and another is always there because he or she read the wrong schedule and just accepted something else. So I gave this reading in Boston, and a woman approached me afterwards, her face tense with anguish and, and disappointment, and she said, I thought you were going to be Alice McDermott. <laughs> so did I, I said. <laughs> And what, just one more, because you couldn't possibly resist. It, it, it occurred here at the Y. Um, and it was many, many years ago. And I gave a reading in the big hall. And there were 700 uh, uh, seats there, 700 uh, people. And um, I finished the reading. And we come to the Q&A. Oh, I should tell you something about the Q&A. Um, E.L. Doctorow used to time, let's say it was a 60-minute reading. He would time his reading to 59 minutes of the 60 so that he wouldn't have to answer any questions from the audience. So I was with him once, and he, sure enough, he timed it to the 59th minute, and there was this guy who got in his, you know, got in his question just in uh, the last second, and his question was, didn't I see you in Law and Order? <laughs> and if you saw it, Edgar's face, I mean, I don't know that he knew what Law and Order was, but. The, anyway, I was at the Y, and I finished this reading. I looked around during the Q&A, and a fellow in the first row raises his hand and says, are you related to Yosela Rosenblatt, the, f <laughs> the famous Ukrainian cantor? I said, I don't know. I, um, maybe, who knows? <laughs> Under my, in my breath, who cares? <laughs> I look around the audience again, hoping for a question that might be distantly related to my reading. Nothing. First guy in the first row raises his hand again. Such a voice, he says. <laughs> that, that was his question then. Again, I look around the audience just praying that somebody would say something um, uh, slightly relevant to my reading, nothing. Same guy in the front row raises his question again and says, you know, you don't look anything like him. <laughs> That's mine, and now I cede the floor to my wonderful friend <laughs> for his, for hers. Thank you. Well, the wonderful thing is that um, when Roger discovered that we were having these parallel experiences, um, now I have someone I can send an email to immediately when they happen, um, and so I do get some benefit from from the humiliations. Um, but the the one that Roger refers to that I think is probably it's going to leave me on top. Um, for, for the rest of the competition. Um, I was giving a reading um, from my last book at um, a little village not too far from where I live, just outside Washington, D.C., um, and arrived for the reading and went into the green room, and I was told I would be introduced by the mayor of this little village. Um, that's great. So the mayor and I are in the green room together, and we're having this wonderful chat. Um, and then she said to me, when we get out, there'll be about 300 people. When we get out, there's a podium and a chair. I will go to the podium. You sit in the chair looking at the audience. And then after I introduce you, I'll sit in the audience and you can get up. Fine. So we walk out together. And I take the chair and I'm looking at the audience. And she begins her introduction. And she begins by um, reading excerpts from some of the recent reviews of my novel. Very what you do, that's fine. And then segue to the biographical part of the introduction. That's also standard. She began the biographical part of the introduction by saying, Alice McDermott was born in Nigeria <laughs> and came to this country at 18. 
and I'm looking at the audience, and I see people going. <laughs> Everything else was right. Graduated from the State University of New York College at Oswego. Everything fine. She finished. She sat down. So I have a moral dilemma. Um, she's a very nice lady, and she got almost everything right. Um, do I humiliate her in front of these 300 people that I thought, no, you know what, just don't say anything. Just thank you for that lovely introduction. Do your reading, which I did. We get to the Q&A. First question is about the novel. I'm good. Second question. How did your childhood in Nigeria <laughs> affect the way you tell stories? <laughs> and in the audience is a friend of mine who had come in late <laughs> and had not heard the introduction. And I see her going, <laughs> So I had to say, as nicely as I could, um, actually, I was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> the reading is over. I'm doing the book signing. The mayor comes to me and sort of breaks into the line and says, you weren't born in Nigeria? That's what it said online. <laughs> She did have an opportunity early on to say, isn't it interesting that you've never written about Nigeria? <laughs> when, when Alice, when Alice, we do email each other. I mean, it's so frequent are the humiliations of writers <laughs> that it constitutes two thirds of our correspondence. And when she emailed this, I said, I give up. <laughs> That, that, was, that was the best, because it was impossible to get a handle on it. And of course, I, I love this part of the story where she was too polite at the beginning to say she wasn't from Nigeria, so you got it for that. <laughs> Our lives are somewhat public in the sense that uh, there are events that um, bring writers together, much like petting zoos. And, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, and we behave fairly well. Uh, partly because we're grateful for it. We're grateful for you, we're grateful for anybody who reads our things, and grateful for a world that still reads. But it's quite different from the private life that we have. It's different from the, the business of what we do. Um, how do you start your day? <laughs> um, you know, I've always tried to pretend that um, writing fiction is a real job. Um, that it's, it's the same as being a waitress or being a surgeon or being a CEO. So um, I've always tried to have breakfast, read the paper, try not to weep while you're reading the paper, um, <laughs> and then go to work, then sit at your desk uh, and be there. Um, and uh, try to stay there when my children were at home till three o'clock, um, and then that was that was it for the writing day. Um, now that they're, they're off, um, you know, stay around till five and six, just be there. It doesn't mean that you're creating great sentences <laughs> or having epiphany after epiphany, but you're there. Um, you're there pursuing whatever it is you vaguely think you're after uh, in a story. Nothing could be more important, and since Alice and I both teach young people who write <laughs> wonderfully, and so we are, responsible to do our best by them, the most important thing we ever tell them is this is work. It's, this is not inspiration. We are not uh, uh, blessed with some divine afflatus every morning and uh, these things come out. You search for the, uh, as Twain said, the difference between the word and the right word uh, and is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. And we are in the lightning business and we work <laughs> at it very hard. I grew up in Gramercy Park neighborhood in the Gramercy Park neighborhood of the city. Uh, when I grew up, there was a family neighborhood, upper middle class, I guess, um, though there was enough what was then called genteel poverty in the city. That doesn't even exist anymore. Um, certainly the genteel part does not. But uh, growing up in Gramercy Park, uh, while I resented it in some way because it was a very tame place and it was a fenced-in park, um, I was thrilled that it was a neighborhood 
that, li that writers grew up, grew up in and worked in, and I was aware of it. And this was a world in which Alice and I grew up, and I imagine many of the people uh, here did too, where writing counted. And we were aware of writers and aware of their reputation and um, aware of a world to which we aspired, but um, it was just simply ad really more admiration than anything. Okay. Stephen Crane uh, wrote Red Badge of Courage in Gramercy Park. Edith Wharton wrote in Gramercy Park, uh, as did Oscar Wilde and Henry James. And um, uh, O. Henry wrote his short stories at Pete's Tavern on 18th Street. Pete's Tavern still exists. Uh -huh. Uh, there, and I'm sure it's saving, serving the same food it, as it did for Earl Henry. <laughs> but the, the one figure, uh, to bring it back to what Alice was saying, the one figure that always stayed in my mind was Melville. Mm. He lived on 26th Street. This was the end of his life. There was no evidence he had at all that his life had been worthwhile at all. The uh, reviews of Moby Dick were terrible. Uh, Omu and Taipei the same. There was nothing, he was this monumental figure in American and all of English literature. Nothing to say to him, this was worthwhile. So I pictured him walking around the park. And instead of thinking of him, particularly when I became a writer, thinking of him as somebody who was morose or saddened or anything, I think he was thinking of the work. Mm -hmm. He was writing Billy Budd <laughs> at the time. It was, Billy Budd uh, was published after he died, to be sure, but he was working on something. And I'm almost sure that um, it's partly because it's salvation, but partly because it is our work that is what mm -hmm. we do. And to be sure, it's not like physics where you push something and you see something move, not, necess not, not necessarily. But it is uh, what we do. Uh, it's hard, it takes concentration, um, and it's worth a life. Yes, it's a little different for me growing up in Elmont. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did find out years later that um, Nelson DeMille lived down the block. Oh, you're me. lucky. <laughs> so there were writers uh, in the world, um, but for, for, for my family, um, for the milieu that I grew up in, um, books were really important, yeah. but they were written by dead guys. Um, that's, that was the maiden requirement to be a, a writer. Um, so um, maybe this was the beginning of our humiliation um, competition. <laughs> Um, I remember being home in Elmont. I had um, decided I wanted to try to really do this writing thing. I took my parents' advice after I graduated as an undergrad and spent a year working in publishing because they said, go to Katie Gibbs, get your secretarial skills right. down, and get a nice job as a secretary in a publishing house. And then if you still want to do this writing thing, you can do it at night, but you'll have health care and a real job. Um, so I had gone off to to graduate school at the University of New Hampshire to give myself a year, maybe see if I can really write. I came home for the summer. It was the first time I was really sort of out of the closet about mom and dad, I'm really going to try to do this writing thing. Um, and I was up in my little childhood bedroom and I was working on a short story and I came down into the kitchen to make myself a cup of tea and my mother was there and she looked at me and she said, oh my gosh, what's wrong? You look terrible. You look so unhappy. What's the matter? And I said, oh, I'm working on this short story and I just, I just can't get it right. And my mother looked at me with tremendous love and affection and said, well then, don't do it. <laughs> sure. It's perfectly <laughs> you know? sensible. And it's, that's always, whenever I hear writers complain about our lot, I hear my mother in the back of my head say, well, okay then, don't do it. <laughs> it is, I mean, it really is, um, all art is privileged life. Yes. Uh, and uh, anybody who um, s says that she or he takes it for granted is either lying or dead wrong. The Part of it, it has to do that we live in a world of wonder. I mean, how many people do that? But that's our normal province, that uh, everything that we um, uh, think about when we write, everything that uh, we appreciate in one and another's work, when I um, read wonderful Alice, um, it's all, the, all coming out of what Keats used to call the uh, the, the realm of mystery, we dwell in the mystery. Where does this uh, stuff come from? There has never been a writer who hasn't, at some point in a piece said, where did that come from? The head snaps mm -hmm. back, mm -hmm. as if there is another force. Seamus Heaney thought it was God, mm -hmm. uh, writers attributed the force to something else, but it's all a very mysterious work. And I must tell you, um, living in the mystery is a very nice place to live. 
Um, it keeps you liberal, for one thing. Uh, and it makes you uh, 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 just, uh, just aware of uh, how, just how much power you have and no more. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful line, um, actually, uh, Saul, in Saul Bellow's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where he talks exactly about that. And he attributed the, the phrase, tr true impressions, oh, which nice. Tolstoy used. Um, and Bellow talks about those moments of true impression when you have the sense as the, that the universe is trying to reveal itself to you. And Bellow pointed out that the beauty of it is that it's so brief. The universe tries to reveal itself, reveals and then conceals itself, but leaves us wanting more. And he, and he ends this little portion of his speech by saying, um, we all understand this, but we don't know how to talk about it because we would have to say there is a spirit and that is taboo. It's true. Uh, 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 interestingly enough, Heaney never, it wasn't taboo for Heaney. Well, he, he said absolutely. He had God. He said God, <laughs> you know, uh, he said that God, uh, God was doing it. You don't have to say that God is doing it, but you certainly are aware of the, uh, the force and the, uh, and the wonder of um, uh, of the spirit uh, that uh, that hits you and it hits you in odd from odd directions. Um, the wonder of living, the wonder of um, uh, my first time I knew what a writer what it felt like being a writer was believe it or not when I was four years old. I wasn't a writer, of course. But my grandfather was an artist in Berlin, and he came to America with his family. He couldn't get a job as artist, of course. So he had a sign painting store in the Bronx. And he lived in St. Mark's Place, and he used to ride the Third Avenue L, for those of you who don't know that, the elevated subway ran up and down Third Avenue. So he would get in his, um, he would do, would do his work in the Bronx, and then he'd ride home. But once or twice a week, he would stop by Gramercy Park, come in, and tell me a story. So he'd sit at the end, the end of my bed and tell me one wonderful story after another, and I was enthralled. One night, he sits at the end of my bed and says nothing. And I said, Pata, my name for him, Pata, aren't you going to tell me a story? And he said in his thick accent, no, Raj, you tell me a story. You tell me a story tonight. I said, I don't know any stories. Well, what'd you do today? So. Uh, that day, Mrs. Morris, uh, mother, uh, neighborhood mother, took the kids in the neighborhood to Palisades Park. And so I started to tell the story of our going to Palisades Park and going on all the rides and going on the slide down into the pond uh, there. And I saw my grandfather interesting, interested in this. So I decided to embellish a bit. And I said there was an alligator in the pond. <laughs> and he came and he wore glasses. Um, and uh, chased me up a hill, and I dug, <laughs> hid in a cave with a polar bear, and we had um, cotton candy. And I looked at my grandfather's face, you know, just the, the smile on his face, and I knew our world. You know, that, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you extrapolate from that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what we do to see, can you hold their attention? Uh, it's a wonderful, it's a privilege and a challenge and a nice way to live. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Don't you think that that sense of um, something trying to reveal itself is, is really tied to paying attention not only to the world but to the language. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. it's tied to words. It's tied to our gift of language that's a kind of incantation for uh, things we might not discover if we were not working so hard at the language. So right. It, the language becomes our symbols and we're supposed to understand them. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we uh, I, um, I know Alice does this, I do this, probably many of you here too. You just get interested in a word. Where did that come from? And uh, the etymology of the word and, the, uh, and all its different meanings and play with it, write it, turn it around. Uh, is this a signal from someplace that we were supposed to be writing? Mm -hmm. Language, language, language. Uh, the, um, <laughs> I don't know better than to confess this, but. When I was uh, 13 or 14, I used to like to go to movies and um, uh, listen for lines that were uh, interesting to me in the movies 
uh, and then I would wait in a normal conversation while people were talking, <laughs> trying in a civilized way to slip in the line. You can imagine what a delightful social companion I was. <laughs> and the, the, um, uh, well, I'll give you an example of the line, but I never got it in. It was in the movie Earthquake, where uh, the, throughout the whole movie, a guy was chasing a woman to attack her during the movie. You'd think a w an earthquake would be enough to distract him, but uh, he was, as the kids say today, focused. <laughs> At any rate, he's running after this poor woman, and the earthquake hits. He jumps her. George Kennedy, playing a cop as he always did, throws him off, shoots him, and says to the woman, I don't know what it is. Earthquakes just bring out the worst in some guys. <laughs> <laughs> so decades passed, and I was unable. Uh, maybe if I lived in California, I would be able to. <laughs> But there, is, the there, there was one line, there was one line that I heard in one of the Nigel Bruce, um, uh, Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes movies on television, when, when those movies used to play, those great movies. Uh, Watson was trying to impress a couple on a train and he with Holmes' exploits, and they didn't hear of Holmes, so he says to the couple, haven't you ever heard of the giant rat of Sumatra? Haven't you ever heard of the giant rat of Sumatra? decades passed, and there was no way I could possibly get that into a normal conversation. <laughs> you have to think of the degree of difficulty. It would, not only was Sumatra was sort of easy, the rat you could get rid of, the giant rat made it difficult. <laughs> but, but what made it most difficult was the expression had to be incredulous. In other words, haven't you heard of the giant rat of Sumatra? <laughs> As if everybody has heard. Anyway, sure, sure enough, when I was working at the Washington Post, and I was out with some guys for lunch, and it happened to be the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the creation of Mickey Mouse. And some guy at the, t <laughs> and some guy at the table says, has there ever been a bigger rodent? <laughs> and it, there you go. <laughs> this is why Heaney believes in God. I'm reminded, listening to you talk about your grandfather, um, I have taught uh, for a number of years at the Sewanee Writers Conference with a wonderful uh, Southern writer, Tony Early. Um, and Tony loves to tell this story in order to emphasize how important the right detail is. Um, it, you're storytelling, you're writing fiction, you're lying. So anyone who is a good liar knows how important the right detail is. Um, and Tony tells this story of, of being a little tyke um, on vacation with his parents in a, a little cabin in the woods. Um, and the parents are sort of anxious to get Tony to go out that morning and play. Um, and they lock the screen door of their little cottage. Um, so he didn't quite understand why mom and dad wanted him outside and they wanted to be locked inside. But he was a child, so instinctively he knew they must be disturbed. Um, so, he, so he started banging on the screen door, and mom, dad, mom, dad, and just go play, go play, we're fine, we're, go play, go play. Um, he walked around the house a couple of times, bang, go play, go play. So finally it struck him, bang on the door, mom and dad, I think there's a rattlesnake out here. And the father, obviously by this time, is not in the mood to be disturbed, so the father sort of catches his breath and says, what kind of snake? <laughs> it's a rattlesnake, Dad, I'm sure. Can you describe it? <laughs> Maybe it's just a black snake. So little Tony, there's a, it's making noise at the end of its tail, and it's really big. It's like it's bigger than me, Dad. And he can hear his father kind of, oh, really, yeah? And it's, oh, it's big, and it's got, it's got fangs, Dad, and it's got three heads. <laughs> And Dad's like, you'll be okay, Tony. Just <laughs> we're not opening the door. <laughs> and, his, and the illustration is he was doing fine. He was convincing his father while all his details were accurate. And then he, as soon as he got, to the, he got carried away with his own storytelling and said three heads, his father no longer believed in the snake. But Tony also points out that for just those few minutes, he and his father both saw the snake. Wonderful, wonderful. They both saw, until the detail ruined it and broke the spell for his father, they were both seeing the dirt right outside the door, the woods, the heat, they were both seeing that snake. And that's when 
Perfect. That's when you know. That's the magic of storytelling. That's perfect. Uh, we were asked to bring um, uh, something, uh, just little passages to uh, uh, read, um, and uh, I'll I'll do that, and Alice will do it. Um, there was one thing, though, in terms of language that I was trying to remember. I think it's from the ninth hour. To Sister Lucy, all something, all good moments are all, all joy. All <laughs> joy was thin ice. You see, I mean, th that's the sentence only a real writer writes. To Sister Lucy, all joy was thin ice. You start out, uh, you'd have no idea where she's going in the sentence. <laughs> the beauty of sentences is that you read them and you, don't, you follow. Even when you write a sentence, you don't know when you, where it's going. I don't know why that is. You've written it, <laughs> but you read it again, you still f follow it. But to Sister, to Sister Lucy, all joy, you stop that, was thin ice. You end the sentence with that, and you realize exactly all of it th there is to know about Sister Lucy. Uh, you can do that in a sentence. Alice has a, a career ahead of her. Um, <laughs> this is from uh, Thomas Murphy, a novel I wrote a couple of years ago. Um, the uh, uh, about a, um, an, an aged uh, uh, poet whose wife has died, whose best friend has died, and he's looking for some life. But he all, he often thinks about writing, and he thinks about poetry. So he says at one point in the novel, "Are you out there?" The cry of poets everywhere, are you out there? Meaning not merely you at this minute, but you who exist a hundred, a thousand years from now. Are you reading old Murph? Sir Thomas James Murphy, Esquire himself, DEA, PCF, SUV, KFC. Have I done anything worthy of reaching across the plains of the years to you in your dumps or palaces? I see you walking in the stubbled fields, heads, da heads down over a book, a book still, is it the collected works of Thomas J. Murphy you're reading? Or if not all the works, a work or two, a phrase or a clause, perhaps a single word quoted in your version of Bartlett's. Even a plagiarized idea will do, or have the secret police banned any mention of my name? Something. Show me the palms of your hands. Show me on Skype. Nothing. The leathered, puckered palm, the leathery, puckered palms of your two-fingered hands. Nothing. Have you no interest in what went before? I may not be much, but I went before. My head teems with galaxies. Someday in the year 5014, you too will have gone before. And if you write a poem, you too will ask, are you out there? Rumors of your existence have reached headquarters. Before the mass suicides that ordinarily attend such bulletins, you might send word that someone is reading someone somewhere. Hard to believe that all our excursions end in ice. If I have a past, I have a future. My projections are contained in my time capsule. Within me, I hold what is to come. I need not see it. Poetry should carry my future, even if the anthologies are airy and the range of colors is reduced to gray and there is no light in you, no light. Then read by my light, the light of me, by my flickering hope that by some means of transport, in the pebbles and the turns, shivers news of me and mine. You are my tongue. You are my poem. Are you out there? Thank you. Read to us. Shall I do a little? Yeah, uh, please. <laughs> um, I thought I would read this little brief passage um, because it says, number one, it says something about um, research. Uh, which I'm not very good at and I don't know how to do in any organized way. Um, but there's always that stuff that you can't use that you buy, right. <laughs> um, that you wish, the sort of scraps around your sewing table um, that you wish you could do something with. And when I was researching um, for the ninth hour and reading a lot about um, religious women, various orders, um, I was so taken and, and uh, delighted by um, the naming of things that uh, that religions do for us, um, you know, giving names to things that we don't really have words for, um, and and the, the the way these religious women founding these orders, how they would name themselves, um, and since in the novel I had founded my own order, um, I had to name it, um, and uh, I was just enchanted by all the scraps of 
these names of orders. Um, some, of, some of them I had sort of embellished, some more actual. Um, so I found a moment in the novel um, where one of the young characters is contemplating joining a religious order. Um, and I was able to sort of gather up these scraps <laughs> and make something of them for the novel. And, and the other thing, um, and I just read this recently, I was looking for something to give a student, um, and it was John Updike saying about um, what a delight it is, and I can't imagine being a writer and not do this, um, to bury small delights within anything you write. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes they're just there for you. You hope the astute reader will find them. Um, maybe someone in 5,000 <laughs> will discover they're there. But that, that sense of you know they're there. Um, I'm not that subtle. But um, there's also one of those moments when you write a line and you go, <laughs> I may be the only one who's ever going to get a kick out of that, but I just got a kick out of that. <laughs> so those two things happen in this very short um, part, of the beginning of a chapter called Orders. There were the little sisters of the sick poor, the little sisters of the assumption, the nursing sisters of the sick poor of the congregation of the infant Jesus, the sisters of the poor of St. Francis, the Dominican sisters of the sick poor of the Immaculate Conception, the poor Clares, the little company of Mary. There were the sisters of divine compassion, of divine providence, of the sacred heart. There were the little nursing sisters of the sick poor of the congregation of Mary before the cross, Sabbat Mater, their own order. But there were also the daughters of wisdom, the daughters of charity, the sisters of charity, the Benedictine sisters, the sisters of St. Joseph, the sisters of reparation of the congregation of Mary. There were the gray nuns of the Sacred Heart, the visitation nuns, the presentation nuns, the handmaids of the Holy Child, the sister servants of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> sister Eugenia admired the Sisters of Mercy. Their, found, their foundress, like our own, she told Annie as if courting her native pride, was an Irish woman, a daughter of wealth, called by God to serve the sick poor, first in Dublin, then all over Ireland, England, and America. A wonderful order, Sister Eugenia said. She named the hospitals the ran, they ran, the schools, the very sanitarium upstate where Sister Illuminata had been cured. Sister Joseph Mary, who kept the convent's small library, mentioned St. Rose's free home for incurable cancer right across the river and run by the Dominican sisters of St. Rose of Lima. Their founder, was the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Sister Joseph Mary said proudly. Not a Catholic himself, she explained <laughs> to Annie, but a great writer nonetheless. <laughs> Alice and I have a love of Ireland in, in common, I by adoption and, and Alice by birth. The, um, Thomas Murphy was born on Inishman, um, and uh, the and my wife Ginny and I spent a year living in Ireland. And uh, there's no place that, that we'd really rather be. Uh, the the great part <laughs> of the Irish, apart from having produced this wonderful literature, you ask yourself why do certain countries produce certain flourish in certain arts? And I really don't know the answer to that, but Ireland certainly did in the literary in the literary arts, and still does. Um, but the other thing it, it flourishes in is sheer comedy, sheer just laughs. And there was a competition unspoken among the counties of Ireland as which is the stupidest. <laughs> now, now you, would, you would think that would be an insult here, but they are actually, that is a real honor <laughs> to be the stupidest county in Ireland, and Kerry always wins. <laughs> County Kerry always wins. Now, I will tell you the one joke, the only joke I remember, but I, I think you'll like it if you don't know it. A Kerry man's walking down the street, and he has a sack on his back, and a second Kerry man goes up to him and says, what do you, ha what do you have in the bag? And the first Kerry man says, I won't tell you. 
Now, I don't know why that strikes me as the funniest part of the joke. <laughs> I mean, it's just, but already you're starting out with some activity. All right, I won't tell you. Ah, do. All right, it's ducks. I have ducks in the bag. Second carryman says, if I can guess how many ducks you have in that sack, will you give me one? First carryman says, if you could guess how many ducks I have in that sack, I'll give you both of them. <laughs> the, the second carry man says five. <laughs> it's, the it's the only joke I know with two punchlines. There's the, the, the difference between a, a man from Mayo and a dictionary is that a dictionary is only this thick. <laughs> 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 no, it's a wonderful place to be, and, and when Ginny and I lived in Ireland, we were, it's, we were steeped in literature. I mean, it was a different world, to be sure, um, and, the, uh, and Ireland uh, clung to the world and flourished, uh, and, uh, and flourished in it. But to go to the bookstores in Dublin mm -hmm. and just linger there, you know, and know that you were in the tradition of uh, the great writers who, uh, who walked the same streets and uh, wrote such wonderful works in a country that really understood what it was getting. That really helped too, to know that it mm -hmm. was totally receptive, the, uh, the Irish, to the plays particularly, and certainly to the poem. Anyway, it was a wonderful place to be. Mm -hmm. You found that. Yes, yeah, and it's, um, I think it's, it's, it doesn't take long, if you spend any time in Ireland, to, um, to hear the literary tradition being <laughs> spoken. The, that whole cliche of storytelling um, is is indeed not a cliche. It actually happens. That 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 listening um, and telling. I remember um, we were over in Dublin. Um, I was doing a little teaching thing, um, and we went out with a bunch of literary types. And um, my youngest son was too young to be in the pub, so my husband sat outside with Patrick. But my daughter and I were sitting there, and she was. I don't know, maybe 15, um, and around the table, the story started going. Mm. Um, and it was just one after the other. Um, and afterwards, she said to me, you know, at first, as I was starting to listen, I, someone would tell a story, and then someone would pick up a story. And my daughter said, and I thought, well, this guy didn't listen to a thing that this other guy said, because this has nothing to do with what he was just talking about. <laughs> but then you wait. And you wait, and suddenly the second person's story comes around uh. and picks up exactly what the first person was saying and adds to it and enlightens. And then a third person will start to tell a story, and you're like, where is this coming from? And then it's woven back. And this is all oral tradition. It sounds like a novel written orally. Yes, exactly. Yeah, just that. And the, what you realize is it's not just, that doesn't just take a, a certain um, talent in, in telling a story. It takes a tremendous listening skill. Oh, yeah. And that's what you find, that just someone starts speaking and everyone is attentive and everyone is patient. Let the story, you know. It's very hard for Americans, even Irish Americans, to remember, like, where is this going? And <laughs> where am I being told this? And suddenly you're brought in, and then there's the enlightenment. And that's, I, I think about that when, when I'm writing novels. It's like, if only I could say to a reader at some point, stay with me now. <laughs> I know this is seeming a little bit long, and, and I understand maybe you don't know where I'm going here, but trust me, you, you'll see it. You'll see it. That is an amazing uh, quality of the oral tradition in Ireland. It's amazing when you, when you get a chance to hear it. I'm in awe of writers. Alice is one who can let it go. Um, and uh, the, by, which, by which I mean um, she's in no rush to tell you why someone behaved in a certain way. And so uh, it'll go from page to page to page to page. And uh, you're enthralled with the language, and you're enthralled with her telling, and you have no idea where she's going, but you trust her that when you get there, it'll be worthwhile. I don't have that. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more of a sprinter, and uh, if I can say it within a short compass, I will, I will say it. But I am in stunned admiration of somebody with the patience uh, and the stamina to just let, a, uh, let an idea or a character 
develop the. Uh, well, that's your training as a journalist too, because I, I you're think such a wonderful. Yeah. I think uh, I think it's true that I, you know, <laughs> I I can in my sleep give you eight hundred words on anything, <laughs> 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 and you will join me in sleep. <laughs> We like what we do, um, and uh, those of you who are writers among us um, uh, share that. And I know some of uh, my students are here, and uh, the one of the great pleasures of writing for a while is um, to know enough to teach. I started to teach when I was 22. I did not know anything, anything, and I don't know why I wasn't ridden out of town on a rail. Uh, the uh, uh, to get through a class was torture, torture for me, certainly torture for the students. Um, <laughs> but in the last, I don't know, maybe 20 years, certainly not longer than that, when I started to write seriously, then I became a good teacher for a couple of reasons. One, um, writing is a very selfish enterprise. You are absolutely interested in yourself, enthralled with yourself, involved with yourself, and so forth. Um, so it's a very nice exercise to give when you're not doing it. But also, you know something. At last, you know something. And so when a student is doing something that you can contribute to, mm -hmm. uh, it's a very nice satisfaction. Mm -hmm. It is, and there's, I, mean, I think the, the most, for me, the most wonderful moment when you're working with younger writers, or don't have to be young, but newer writers, um, when you read their work and you see something that you know eventually they will understand about their own work, but they haven't recognized yet. And you can recognize and, and, and point it out to them, that, that there's a motif here that's being established, that there's a repeated metaphor that is getting you beyond what you thought your story was going to be. Um, and I know because we do this, you understand that eventually the writer would see that but when you can intervene as a teacher and say, look what you're doing mm. here. Look at the sense of inevitability that your words are giving to how this story has got. And they'll, they'll look at it first and say, I didn't even know I put that in there. And say, no, no, no. You haven't recognized yet that you put that in there, but you put that in there. It's you, I didn't write it, you wrote it. Um, and that wonderful sense of, um, I'm just showing you what you don't know you already know. Mm. That's best. There was, um, years, sometimes what we do is teach, um, and often we teach really first-rate literature as part of teaching writing. Uh, it's the best examples that we have and also gives a different rhythm to what we're uh, teaching. And students learn to read very well. And Alice and I, as any writers do, are firm believers that good writers are made first by good readers. You have to read very, very carefully and read as widely as you can. And I was teaching a class in this short story, Clay, which you may know from, Dublin, from Joyce's uh, collection, Dubliners. And Clay's a wonderful story, to my mind, better than the dead, but it, that's neither here nor there. It's just a great, great story. Um, and a young woman who came from the islands, uh, who came from, I think, Barbados, came to me after the first class and said, I'm not sure I know enough to be in this class. I, my experience is so is so different. And I said, well, why don't you just stay for a couple of classes and see what you think before uh, 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 leaving uh, too, too quickly. Anyway, in the first page, on the first page of Clay, Mariah is, uh, Mariah is the center, central figure of the story, is a, a woman without a husband, without uh, children, uh, who is alone in this world, and she lives, she works in a laundry, um, and the, uh, she likes to think that people are thinking well of her, but nobody's thinking at all of her. Um, and she looks for any moment in her life where praise might come, where something, someone's, something someone said would make her happy and feel human. And so in the laundry, where, and she's a little diminutive woman, and the other women who work in the laundry are uh, big, and Joyce makes a point of describing their big arms, their big red arms. And, um, someone uh, uh, comments on her carving or her slicing a bread, a bread called barmbrack. Barmbrack is just a big, thick 
bread that was usually used in poor places to feed as many people as possible. And Mariah had sliced them. And she tells, sometimes Joyce writes in her voice and says, and Mariah had sliced them herself. And you can hear her say, and I had sliced them myself in a moment of pride. End of the class, the young woman from Barbados comes up to me and said, oh, sorry, no, she does not. She raises her hand a little, little uh, hesitantly um, after discussing this and said, I read the story and I really felt that Joyce was doing with the story what Mariah did with the barn brack. That is, she sliced them so carefully you could not see the fissures uh, between the slices of bread. <laughs> and I smiled and she smiled <laughs> and I said, you know, I've taught this story a long, long time <laughs> and nobody's ever said that. And these are great moments in sports, yeah. I will tell you. Yeah. The, 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 um, uh, the light that, uh, that says, I have got something from the writer's point of view. Mm -hmm. And then, then yeah. we went. We do our yeah, we'd be happy to answer any questions. Uh, no math, of course. Well, well we're, uh, we, we think of it the way you do. I mean, we, we are certainly uh, aware of it. Uh, and as you say, in eastern Long Island, and Alice knows the area too, is I'm trying to get her out there. She is absolutely <laughs> unseducible. Uh, uh, the, uh, but it would be wonderful if she did. Um, you know why the painters went to eastern mm -hmm. Long Island. Mm -hmm. The light is just amazing, just mm -hmm. you know, breathtaking um, things. And uh, it's like, you know, it's, uh, this, this natural gift that says, and you will find in my work in Alice's and most of the writers we admire, there's always some passage that deals with the light. Mm -hmm. you, you would have had to release the um, photograph window kind of light uh, um, I think that's probably in some ways inevitable in the context, um, but I think it comes more out of, as Roger is saying, uh, uh, that, that being true to the craft um, you know, I, I suppose I've, I've hit so many students over the head with Joseph Conrad's, the only obligation of the writer above all is to make you see. Mm. Um, that is the only thing you're obliged to do. Henry James says the only thing you're obliged to do is be interesting, but if Henry James is saying that, I'm not buying it. <laughs> it's not always interesting either. <laughs> no. But Conrad says that's, that's it, that make you see. And in that effort, of course, in the quality of light. I mean, it's all about vision. It's about a character's vision. It's about getting behind the eyes of a character and, and uh, evoking their world. So in a very craft way, um, the light enters the story because it's, uh, it, it's so much involved in the way of, it is our way of seeing or not seeing. But then the context um, closes in around it and that's when multiple meanings begin to accrue for any detail in fiction. And I think that's, this is why I love to write fiction. It's why I love to read fiction. Um, in, in real life, we've got lots of details, and they really only have one, often only have one meaning. Um, but every detail in a work of fiction is chosen. Um, it, do, it doesn't have to be that light. It could be a different light. It could be a light bulb. It could be coming through the window. It could be raining outside. Everything is chosen by the creator of the story. And so everything, um, even if it just seems like a simple detail, uh, has meaning and purpose. So that's where, yes, of course, a religious meaning, uh, an emotional meaning, but it begins with just that simple workmanlike effort I, the read, I want the reader to see. I want to see, and I want the reader to see, and that's my obligation. The, the wonderful thing about your question is, coming from the Conrad, and Conrad was hardly an admirable character, but he's a terrific <laughs> writer. Um, <laughs> the, the, that happens. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, about the light, it's as if you're saying, did you see that? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And you would say it, and I would say, did you see that? Mm -hmm. and it's not a rhetorical question for us. We want uh, uh, to uh, to create 
um, uh, some appreciation of what we see and the details. Interestingly enough, we plant. Uh, you'll know it as, as readers, and we know it as readers. Alice will write one thing on page nine. She will repeat it on page, repeat something like it on page 29 and on page 69, yet something else. The reader does not know that she or he is moving along a field that Alice has planted. But by the third mention, the head says, wait a minute, uh, now I get it. You know? We hope. And then the use of details is really very satisfying. Did it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not that we're really touchy or anything. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's funny about that. You, you, you get a bad review, and of course it stings. Um, uh, you try not to read the reviews, but of course, you know, again, you, you know, you're human and you, you do it. <clears throat> there are sometimes, there are two kinds of bad reviews. There's a bad review of somebody who really doesn't know his ass from his elbow, and you really don't care. <laughs> then there's the bad review from somebody who's very smart. And it's, you're better off trying to pay attention to something that is said in the review in case it's useful. Um, it doesn't make it less painful, and it doesn't make, it make you a better person, but it makes you a smarter person. Um, and so uh, if you get you know, something that uh, says, he always does that. I said, do I always do that? You know, um, and so uh, it's worth paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't read reviews. Um, there, there's just no, I realized early on, I thought I would learn something from them and I don't think I could. Uh, you realize early on that reviews are written act actually for everyone else in the universe but you. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, it's now not about you. It's it's about everybody who hasn't read your book. Or, um, um, but also I found um, I would skim reviews no matter how full of praise they were, looking for the but or I didn't like. I said, how sick is this? You know, the wonderful, terrific. No, 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 no. What? what okay, where's it coming? Come. That um, is that's very useful. Though, to do that. <laughs> it really is. It probably is, and maybe I, but I can't. I mean, it's. Um, I, I can't, I don't believe the good ones, um, and so why should I believe the bad ones? So I don't, don't read. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pact with the devil, because if you believe the good ones, then you do have to pay attention to the bad ones. So my feeling, and now, of course, the internet is different. I don't Google myself. That is, a, yeah, that's a very good idea not to do. Right, yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's out there, and, um, uh, that's not what you're writing for, you know. Um, it's it's you, you create it and and you send um, you send your books out into the world. I don't read reviews, but I also can't read my books after they're published, you know, except when I have to. Um, it's done. It's out there. Um, the, it has its own fate. To I meet. don't think. I, yeah, I don't think I've ever read a, a book no. of mine afterwards. You know, just get it done. Is what Alice says is so interesting. It is just like um, something said by Bill Russell, the great former. Uh, Celtics um, center. And Bill Russell was, at his time, the best basketball player ever. Uh, he, um, the Boston championships, they won more championships than any other team. Um, I was painfully aware as a Knicks fan uh, <laughs> of what, how good, good they were. And they were good solely because of Bill Russell, what he could do. Okay. In racist Boston, he was booed every time he went on the court. Now we're talking about somebody who was responsible for winning more championships than anyone else, okay? And they boo him because he's black. And his daughter, his little girl, came up to him at, at one point after a game and said, Daddy, why do they do that? And how can you listen to those boos? And he said, I don't hear the boos because I don't hear the cheers. Mm -hmm. It takes a, a long time to realize that 
Um, praise is really no more useful uh, than blame uh, if you do know, if you feel that you do know what you're doing. And um, the, you know, you could, I suppose you could get giddy and happy if somebody uh, loves you and um, Alice and I are kind of lucky, I mean, in the, in the sense that it seems that more people like us than do not. But um, to listen to the praise, uh, to, lis uh, to listen to the uh, praise can be just as destructive, you know, and you think, look at me, I'm the cock of the walk, uh, and then you're a goner. Although I have to add to that, I, I received an honorary degree from Boston College many years ago, along with Bill Russell. And, 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 <laughs> Lucky we, girl. and we marched into the stadium together. I was just behind, I think, the, I think they did this as a joke, I was just <laughs> behind him so right. that I compl you couldn't find me. I mean, he was, but being right behind him and walking into the football stadium for graduation and looking up and seeing the faces of everyone when Bill Russell appeared. Um, and I, oh, they must read my books. <laughs> it was sort of, but, the, but it, was my, it was a very vicarious, oh, so this is what it's like to be very tall and much loved. <laughs> so true. Uh, thank you. Did you hear that question? It's just, uh, when you sit down, is it a short story? It's a novel, which is a really interesting question. Um, I, I th it's an intuitive sense, I think. Um, and, and for me, having done this eight novels and only a handful of short stories, um, I, have a, I have a good sense of what feels like a, a novel and what feels like a short story. I suppose the irony of it is, um, I always know far less about the story that feels like a novel than I do about the story that feels like a short story. Um, and I, I think that's why I think of myself as a novelist, because I love that not knowing. And maybe I'm not so hot at short stories because I think I know too much too early. Um, speaking of Seamus Heaney, he has that wonderful line um, in, in his poems, and he also quotes it, um, uh, in his, no, not that I read everybody's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, but that one is particularly good. Um, he says about poets, we must teach ourselves to walk on air against our better judgment. I, I, I can't tell you how often I use that with my class. It's I mean, that's the, it's it's the reasons it's for what we do. And so, and I, and, and I see, I feel that much more with the novel. It's kind of hold your breath and start putting down sentences and see what happens with a short, something that feels more like a short story, you know, I, I think it's going to end here and I think this is going to happen. It, and sometimes that can be confining. Knowing too much can be as, as deadening um, as knowing too little. Uh, structurally, a short story is over by the time it begins. Mm -hmm. mm. All the short story is an explanation of the things that preceded <laughs> it. And so you are much, you much, you are much um, more enclosed. Mm -hmm. and less free in the story than you would be in a novel where, as uh, Dr. O said, you start with nothing and you find out what the novel wants to tell you. Isn't it Vonnegut who said every short story should begin as close to the end as possible? I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. For me, it was always poets. Uh, I wanted to be a poet. I studied uh, w with Robert Lowell when I was in uh, college, and um, I wasn't good enough. I, the, uh, in, in baseball terms, I was good enough for AAA, um, the, uh, the minors, uh, at the, maybe at the top of the minors. Um, <laughs> but I recognized it, and uh, I, it may have helped me in, another, in other ways because I've, I'm aware of the musical rhythms of prose, and so mm -hmm. uh, uh, try to, actually I don't try, it just comes, uh, uh, what I do uh, in, uh, in that. Um, and I remember carrying around, there was a Lewis Untermeyer anthology of modern poets when I was a kid, 
and I carried this book around. God <laughs> knows, you know why. Um, uh, but there was something consoling about touching uh, the the book that uh, held so many wonderful poets. I do remember mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I also read a lot of poets, but um, but I think what made me want to be a fiction writer. Um, I, I have a clear memory of um, undergraduate summer um, in the Elmont Public Library. I was sort of reluctantly edging towards an English degree because, you know, you hear, what are you going to do with that? You know. um, <laughs> I had started out uh, in, in um, social science because that sounded like something you studied in college. I didn't, wasn't interested in it all, but I was edging towards an English degree, and um, and I went to the Elmont Public Library and just sort of walked through the fiction stacks, looking for authors whose names I recognized, but I knew I had never read anything. Um, and I saw Nabokov, um, and I knew about Lolita, but I hadn't read Lolita, um, and it was short stories. Um, and so, so this I should probably read something that he's written, and I don't want to read a whole novel, so I'll read. And I remember reading those stories and feeling with complete conviction that if you chose this career and you spent your entire career trying to write sentences as complex and beautiful and multi-layered um, and characters who are so complex and, and um, awful and, and, and compassionate and sympathetic and all at the same time. If you spent your whole career trying to write that well and you never did, that would be a wonderful way to spend your life. Mm -hmm. um, with complete vividness, I, I, I remember being convinced of that. And I write today with Nabokov open on the table <laughs> for, the, uh, for the same, uh, for exactly the same reasons. Um, when you think of what he could do, uh, we're like, here, just think of Lolita. What's Lolita? That's about a pedophile, <laughs> yeah. you know? So how, the question, how do you make the teller of the tale of the pedophile be so attractive in his distorted way that you stay with the book? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No small feat. Yeah. How should I know? <laughs> <laughs> I love your question because I love it when uh, I get something from Korea. Right? This is ridiculous. Imagine translating it this way. I have the slightest idea what uh, how the things are going. I do. I, I guess I can read French and, uh, and other things. I'm just flattered that somebody thought that what what I was writing was translatable into the experience to the experience of another country. Uh, so, um, but I wouldn't have any pretenses of knowing how accurate. Uh, uh, it was. Oh, um, I just had a wonderful experience being invited to a uh, uh, literary festival in Mantua in Italy. And Mantua, as you probably know, is the town of Virgil, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. 40,000, a town of 40,000. The literary festival had 80,000 people in. Mm. They came into town, and you, it was so civilized, you couldn't tell that you were uh, at all in a place that was crowded or anything. Um, and uh, the, they, this, um, they had translated uh, uh, Making Toast uh, into Italian and made a beautiful, beautiful book of it. And they asked if I would uh, inscribe a, a, a copy to the fellow who translated the book. And I'm start, I started to write, and I look up, and I said, does he read English? <laughs> <laughs> and the publisher looked at me with, why did we ask him? Uh, <laughs> pathetic. actually sadly through the death of our daughter and I wanted to uh, it was the only form that made sense uh, I wasn't going to fictionalize that certainly and it was um, uh, when any of us is uh, and people in this room will recognize it when any of us is stricken with something that is unbearable 
you turn to your craft. There's no, if I were a carpenter, I would have built a bench, and so I uh, wrote the memoir. It wasn't quite a memoir, but it was the idea that um, the truth of the tale was probably more compelling than anything I would make up, and I wanted to write something for my family. Having done that, I realized that I had written about everybody else's grief in that book but my own, so I wrote Kayak Morning. And that, um, as a true, would be more of a true memoir. The Boy Detective I wrote uh, because, again, I, the, I, didn't have, I didn't have Alice's skills. I've written a couple of novels, but um, I don't, it's not my natural uh, 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 form. Uh, the natural form is probably the memoir or the essay. And so memoir being an extended essay, um, uh, that, uh, that's what I did. It's another thing that writers do and that Alice and I teach our students, find your strength and play to it. You know, there's no point in, it's, it's nice if you can do a, a couple of other things um, or try to do a couple of things, but if you have a particular strength, there's no point in not playing into it. You're just wasting time. If you have a strength, go, you know, go for it. Don't we all eavesdrop in restaurants? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, you know, dialogue, is, uh, written dialogue is not the same as what we hear in, you know, it's supposed to seem to be authentic speech, but it really isn't, it's something else. Um, uh, but again, I think that it's, it's that matter of intuition um, and, and a kind of inner ear. Um, how does it sound? Uh, does it sound right? Um, and, and it's also, um, and I think this is true of dialogue, it's true of description, and it becomes true of plot as well. Um, you, you, there's a logic to the characters you create. Again, you've created them out of whole cloth. Even if it started out you were gonna write about your aunt, you know, <laughs> as, you, as you found the language with which to describe her, you transformed her. Um, she's not that real person, she's a person on the page. Um, and, and so you have a certain logical obligation to everything that you keep. The, every detail that you say, yes, that detail belongs, um, means a million other things are eliminated. Um, so once you define it, begin to define a character, maybe someone would say this in a restaurant to each other, but not this guy, not that character. That character can't say that. Um, and often it's a matter, of, but you had planned for the character to say that. But as, as the, as the ca character is conjured through language, um, they become their own. And, and after a while, I think the writer's only obligation is to stay true to the created character. Whether that's what you intended to create, whether the character is cooperating with the plan that you have for the story you're going to tell. Um, you have created a certain kind of character, and then it's not so much putting words into this character's mouth, it's this is what this character must say or would never say. Um, and, and in some ways, without making it seem too much like channeling, um, it's no longer in your hands. Um, the, in order to be true to the character, you have to um, let the character um, com be completely the character you have woven up until that moment, um, which sounds very complicated, but it's not. It's just listening to the character and staying true to what you have already set up, what you've created. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you.